guess what? We know almost every podcast listener loves a true crime mystery. And every Friday, we got a ton of it. First up, The Syndicate, the story of the murder of journalist Don Bowles. Man, I love this story. Did you know that an American journalist was car bombed and killed by the mob in 1976 in Phoenix, Arizona, on American soil, and that the state of Arizona is still covering up for the true criminals that orchestrated his death? I just wonder why. I bet you'd never heard of this story. So buckle up. The syndicate has it all. As a television producer by trade and a journalist at heart, I get asked all the time as it relates to telling stories, why? Why is this particular story important? How does a violent incident that took place in 1976 become relevant today in the culture wars and social media orgy that plagues us? Why does anyone care? Maybe my fascination comes from a particular romantic ideal of chasing a lead that could hold accountable the powers that be or uncovers a piece of corruption that becomes that defining moment in any journalist's career. I didn't know Don Bowles, but I have to imagine he felt that way back at that time. He felt that motivation to go after very dangerous and powerful people And in that is honor. In that is a semblance of honesty. The question that remains to me, if Don Bowles was able to report on that story that haunted him, would it have changed anything? Would it have led him to the top of the food chain of power, money, and influence? The trifecta that any working journalist is after. In one of the sound bites of archival footage, it sounded as if Don Bowles was at the end of his rope. He was thinking about leaving investigative reporting, but it was another tip, another phone call, another lead to get that one source to go on the record that led him to the Clarendon Hotel that day. Well, this is Phoenix today, a booming dark horse of the desert, which within a few years may have a larger population than Boston or Philadelphia. And hear this, in just 10 years, the population of Phoenix increased by 400%. In downtown Phoenix, the skyline changes every few weeks. And you go downtown and you see these high risers reaching for the clouds, and you ask yourself, how did it happen? How could such a beautiful, sprawling city emerge from this desert dust? When you think of organized crime, New York comes to mind, as well as Chicago, Detroit, Vegas, and even Boston. No one ever thinks of Arizona. Yet, both Phoenix and Tucson were a hotbed of mafia activity as early as the 1950s, and Don Bowles was neck deep in following their movement. Don Devereaux was a working peer of Bowles. His work on a land fraud story in Santa Fe, New Mexico, involving Phoenician Ned Warren, brought the two men together and Devereaux to Phoenix. Little did Devereaux know 
that he would end up dedicating 40 years of his life investigating the murder which relied heavily on his own expertise of the mob infiltration in Arizona. I learned how fairly early on as a journalist uh, to have organized crime contacts. My, my mentor locally in that regard was a guy named Jack Weaver, who was right. Sergeant, Sergeant Weaver. of the Phoenix Police Department. And Jack became controversial as a cop because he did the same thing. I mean, there was a time when the Phoenix Intelligence Unit monitoring an organized crime guy would sit down the block with binoculars and try to get the license plates of the people going in and out of his bar. Mm-hmm. And Jack said, screw that. You know, I'm going to go in and have a stool, have a beer, introduce myself, and, and I'm going to see who's in there and I'm going to just, you know, hang out. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to treat them respectfully, but I'm, yeah, they're going to know who I am. But it's much better than sitting down the street with binoculars. Sure. And, and, and he actually ended up in a, in a friendly relationship with Buddy Taco that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got to know each other and, and, and respected each other and were careful with their boundaries and all that kind of thing. Uh, so I did the same thing. I, I basically knocked on doors of those guys, including Taco. And through Buddy Taco, I, I met Johnny Luciano. I met Joe DeCaro, who was a one-time big shot in Chicago and the Accardo family, retired out here. Devereaux would spend so much time cultivating his organized crime sources that he was mistakenly listed as an unindicted co-conspirator in the newspaper after a mob roundup in the 80s. In telling Don Bowles' story, I feel it's vitally important for listeners to understand the criminal landscape in Arizona from this era. It was a wild west where the bad guys wore suits instead of a black cowboy hat. So let's rewind the clock a few decades to when the Mafia violently announced their presence in the Valley of the Sun. Bill and Lori Nelson settled in a quaint ranch house in Phoenix, Arizona in the 1950s. Bill identified himself as a retired businessman who had formerly worked as a cattle broker and they enjoyed a lavish lifestyle. One morning, As he was going through his routine to look over the stock market quotations in downtown Phoenix, he started the engine in his 1953 Ford pickup truck, which resulted in a thunderous explosion. Bill's shredded body fell near the driveway, approximately 15 feet from what used to be his Ford truck. The explosion was so powerful, there were literally pieces of Bill's body found in trees in his front yard. Bill's neighbors realized his true identity just a few hours after the explosion. Willie Beoff, a labor racketeer and longtime associate of the old Chicago syndicate. After being arrested and charged in the extortion racket in 43, Beoff testified against the top leadership of the Chicago mob about their role in the massive Hollywood extortion scandal. In exchange for selling out his partners, Beoff walked away a free man and got to keep the millions he had stolen as well. And just like that, Chicago mobster Willie Beoff became Arizona businessman Bill Nelson. Willie Beoff relocated. He operated under an assumed name for years. He's in Phoenix, and he gets hooked up with another Phoenix resident by the name of Gus Greenbaum, who we'll talk about many times, I'm sure, over future episodes. Unfortunately, he starts appearing in Las Vegas. He starts hanging around with uh, a United States Senator, Barry Goldwater, becomes friends with him. He becomes very public. And the outfit says, wait a minute. We found this guy. 
So one morning in 1955, Willie Beoff goes out to start his truck, and his truck blows sky high with Willie Beoff in it. They found pieces of him and his truck 200 feet away. And that is the end of Willie Beoff and the story of the Chicago outfit who never forgets. Beoff had a strange friendship with Senator Barry Goldwater after relocating to Arizona. In 52, Goldwater admitted to receiving a campaign contribution from Beoff through his uncle, but claims he didn't know who he was until later in their association. Beoff is thought to have contributed up to 5000 to Goldwater's campaign, but the exact amount is unknown. Beoff allegedly educated Goldwater about the practical, coercive, terroristic, and frequently illegal methods of union bosses. And Goldwater candidly admits an obligation to be off in the public good, according to reports. Yet, Barry Goldwater showed up for the funeral and denied with a straight face knowing who Willie Beoff really was. This wouldn't be the last time the Goldwater family was found to be hanging around with mobsters. They hung out at places like Durant's, an upscale steakhouse that was owned and operated by Jack Durant, a former pit boss for Bugsy Siegel at the Flamingo. Stories of power brokers and mafiosos working over corrupt local politicians are notoriously wrapped up in the mystique of the local Phoenix legend, which can be heard from the comfort of one of the restaurant's circular leather booths. Jack was a nice guy. Everybody thought he was mean, mean boss, but I don't, I didn't think so. Things that he treated me real nice. Once in a while, of course, he got after me like he does everybody else. Right. He's supposed to. He's the boss. After the assassination of Bugsy Siegel, Gus Greenbaum took over the failing Flamingo, and within a few months, he had it out of debt. Within a few years, he had control of numerous additional syndicate casinos and added bookmaking enterprises throughout Arizona, where he now made his home. In the late 1940s, he was moved to Las Vegas, where he took over the Flamingo Hotel after Bugsy Siegel was murdered and put the place in the black within the first six months of its management. By 1950, Greenbaum was widely recognized as the driving force behind the success of the $50 million Tropicana as well as being known and respected in the underworld as a reliable source of information on Las Vegas real estate. After being involved in years of gambling and mob ties, Greenbaum and his wife Bess were found murdered in their central Phoenix home in December of 1958. A butcher knife had been used to slit their throats. Gus was discovered in bed wearing a heating pad and watching television. He was on the verge of being decapitated. Before her throat was slit, Bess received blunt head injuries. Once again, Barry Goldwater and his family were found to have ties to a notorious mobster who met his end in Phoenix. Greenbaum hosted the Goldwaters at the Flamingo and Riviera Casinos on a regular basis. When Greenbaum and his wife were murdered, Goldwater's right-hand man and future chairman of Arizona's Republican Party became the unpaid appraiser of Greenbaum's estate, which is being held in trust by the Valley National Bank, where Bobby Goldwater, the brother of Barry, was a director. 
Like Willie Beoff, Greenbaum lived in Arizona part-time and was close to Goldwater, then a Phoenix, Arizona councilman. In fact, Goldwater's family operated a branch of Goldwater's department store inside the Desert Inn, which was the excuse Goldwater used for visiting Vegas so often. The Jewish mob was here in Phoenix, Willie Beoff and, and the Greenbaums and people sure. like that. And uh, close when they were here to Goldwater and a lot of those people, uh, the, uh, they were basically Lansky, Nathan Lotion, the kosher Nostra. When the Italians really got interested in Phoenix, they basically took those folks out of the game. Mm -hmm. And the Green Bombs, both of them were murdered, husband and wife and Bill Willie Bioff. And, and the, the Italians took over the scene pretty effectively at that point. It became socially acceptable for Barry Goldwater to hop a ride to Vegas with the Green Bombs or the Italians, whoever it was. Um, and, and for Joe Bonanno to be a frequent guest at the Phoenix Country Club. There was a lot of fraternization going on uh, that would have seemed in other situations uh, ethically dubious. But the, the climate in Phoenix accepted it. It was, it was just routine. And so there was an ethos here that was a little bit different than most big cities I've lived in where there were more distinct boundaries between organized crime and the Chamber of Commerce. But we had a merging of the two in ways that were kind of unusual here. This was a town without a particularly high crime rate, but it was terribly mobbed up at the same time. As one mafioso was murdered in Phoenix, another powerful mafia leader would relocate to Arizona. Joseph Bonanno, or Joe Bananas, was an Italian-American crime boss running the Bonanno crime family. He was born in Sicily, and eventually relocated to New York City with his family when he was three years old. At the age of 25, he became one of the youngest ever bosses of a crime family. He would eventually serve on the commission where the ruling heads of mafia families would make decisions that all mobsters had to follow. Joseph Banana was born in Casamonte Gulf of Sicily on May 18, 1905. In 1924, he arrived to the United States as the king. He was raised to do what he did. So in a way, you really can't fault Joseph Milano himself. He was raised to do what he did. He was trained as a child to understand this is his way of life. He was the boss of bosses and the, the super boss. After years of being one of the most powerful men in Cosa Nostra, he allegedly retired to Tucson, Arizona in 1968. Or did he? Did Joe Bonanno retire? No, he never retired. You never retire. There's only one way you retire from Cosa Nostra, that's feet first. Bonanno eventually joined the parade, uh, settled in Tucson, and, and gradually asserted himself as the dominant mob figure in Arizona. Bonanno claimed to be a retired textile manufacturer, cotton planner, and cheese baron to his neighbors. He used blind trusts, more on that later, to invest in bakeries, parking lots, barbershops, and real estate. Years later, Bonanno recalled, I had always resisted any attempt to integrate Tucson into my world. It was a spot to get away from it all in Tucson. Mobsters and cops familiar with New York's Joe Bananas were skeptical of his retirement. This was a man characterized by Time Magazine as one of Cosa Nostra's bloodiest murderers. As Don Devereaux tells the story, Joe Bonanno not only remained active in organized crime, 
but he became the official head of the mafia in the state of Arizona. On July 22nd, a bomb was detonated on the patio of mob kingpin Joe Bonanno. A rogue FBI agent is suspected of being behind the Bonanno bombing. While the Bonanno crime family would officially run organized crime in the state, they were far from the only family who began doing business in the area. Bonanno invited Chicago in. Chicago did not come uh, without his permission. Uh, there was not any kind of a conflict between the Chicago mob and, and Joe. Um, they came out here and, and they were pretty much told to stay in the Phoenix area. And Bonanno basically stayed with his people in Tucson. And they operated a lot of joint ventures uh, where they were sharing uh, the effort and the, and the proceeds of whatever they were doing. The dog tracks being ultimately one of them. Another subject that captivated Bowles' interest and would haunt him until his death was the dog racing industry. The Phoenix Greyhound Park was owned and operated by the Funk family. The Funks and Emprise, a New York-based company that handled sports concessions around the country, split control of the tracks. By 1958, all of the dog racing tracks in Arizona would be under the control of the Funk family with the help of their business partners, Emprise. It was believed that each company held a 50-50 stake in the business. The Jacobs family, who lived in Buffalo, owned Emprised and controlled at least 162 company organizations. Mo Dalitz of Las Vegas, Anthony Zarelli of Detroit, and Raymond Patriarca of Providence are believed to have had long and complicated financial dealings with the corporation. Don had become convinced, uh, and not out of the blue, but he had become convinced that the dog tracks in Arizona were... Uh, masking a silent partnership by the mafia. And this was, you know, this was a, a notion that had some, some national legs already. Uh, the, the fact that um, Sports Illustrated had called uh, Lou Jacobs the godfather of sports, uh, there, there was national attention to the fact that Emprise Corporation as a kind of a sport uh, holding company for lots of activities might be mobbed up with no secret. And uh, it was true, evidently. And, and so as the Arizona angle of that, uh, Don was looking at what were they doing here. And there were some indications that that also seemed to be happening here. The Emprise Corporation began as a small, family-owned sports concession business out of Buffalo, New York in the early 1900s. Owned by the Jacobs family, they would grow into a massive company that handled concessions for professional sports stadiums across the country. The company expanded to theaters, in-flight meals for airlines, and eventually was awarded the concessions contracts for all national parks in the U.S. Emprise had also acquired controlling interest in several pro sports franchises and would also extend their reach into ownership of over 20 horse and dog racing tracks nationwide, which would bring them to Don Bowles' doorstep. Their partnership with a local family, the Funks, led to owning all six of Arizona's dog racing tracks, as well as two of the three horse racing tracks. In short, Emprise and the Funks had a monopoly in the state when it came to betting tracks. Emprise was also known for its ties to organized crime figures, 
and was even convicted of racketeering in Los Angeles in 72. The Jacobs family was known to do business with several crime families in other states as well, including giving a piece of their pie to the mafia in Arizona. Emprise was eventually convicted of conspiring to conceal ownership of the Frontier Hotel and Casino in Vegas in 1972. The, the Funk people came out of a, originally a jewelry business, as I, as I recall, mm-hmm. and ultimately became partners with Emprise and the Dog Tracks. And the partnership was uh, not a real partnership. Uh, the Funks had to borrow money to become half owners of six dog tracks. I believe that money was a loan from Detroit National Bank. Mm-hmm. And their, their stock in the dog tracks became collateral for the loan. And the mob controlled that bank, which meant that Emprise could vote the funk stock and its own stock. It didn't have to ask the funks for permission. Uh, the funks were ostensibly the managing partner of the tracks. They had an office on Central Avenue, uh, and it was Funk's Greyhound Racing Circuit was the title of the company. And if you went in the company, almost all of the key players were from Buffalo. Oh, really? Even though the Funks were the managing partners. The, the, the comptroller, you know, Dan Francati, and the people that controlled the money for the dog track operations in every respect were basically Buffalo people mm-hmm. who had been brought in to do it, which is a, an indication of, of who the dominant partner really was. Right. Uh, but the Funks were there and, and were, were doing it. There were four Funks involved. Uh, two senior Funks, David and Arthur. Uh, David's son was Albert and Arthur's son was Bradley. Uh, both sons were, as far as I can tell, typical second generation spoils. Didn't really, you know, run the business much of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the patriarch was David. Uh, David K. Funk was not mob, but he might as well have been. Messing with David was just as dangerous as messing with Joe Bonanno, probably. Mm-hmm. You, you could get hurt real bad doing that. The mob love a good scam, and there was nothing more enticing to them more than taking advantage of a rare Arizona law known as a blind trust. This was a one-of-a-kind state law that allowed criminals to purchase land using numbered blind trust accounts. Think Swiss bank account. They were able to remain anonymous and launder money by purchasing land through these accounts. Don Devereaux explains. We had a, a, an unusual blind trust system in Arizona that was much like Switzerland, maybe even better, um, where you had a capacity to get a bank account through a trust officer with a number, and only the trust officer knew who you were. But that bank account could also own real estate. It could own land and buildings, which is pretty unusual. So maybe 30 40% of Maricopa County back in those days was owned by number. Nobody knew who the hell owned it. And the FBI and nobody had penetrated that system effectively. And with that kind of privacy, lots of mob money that might have gone to Switzerland or offshore banking somewhere came to Arizona. And a lot of, a lot of corporate money did too. It was funny money that they were hiding from the, <laughs> the, the tax people, some damn thing. It became a haven for all kinds of off-the-books funding. And you could not only invest your money here, but your money could make money while it was here by owning real estate. So it was a twofer. You could have a safe place to put your money, and that money could earn money while it was doing that. So that was the reason, for example, that Arizona developed rapidly in ways New Mexico didn't. 
you know, they, all that capital was flowing in here. The, the lending ratio at banks is dependent on how much money it's got. And with the amount of capital flowing into the banks, especially Valley National Bank in those days, there was lots of, lots of investment capital available for businesses. And so this became a very good place to come as an entrepreneur to start whatever the hell you wanted to start and, and have capitalization to, to do it. And with the money also came the mob. I mean, you, the, the mob interest followed the money. And you had the situation where almost everybody in town that was borrowing money from the bank was tapping into mob funding one way or another. When it came to land scams, no one did it better than Ned Warren, nicknamed the godfather of Arizona land fraud. Warren, born Nathan Waxman in Boston, Massachusetts, was already a convicted con man before arriving in Arizona in 61. Later, while under investigation in Arizona for numerous financial crimes, several violent deaths took place as authorities attempted to close the net on Warren. Warren would eventually be sentenced to 54 to 60 years in prison in Arizona in 78 after being convicted on 20 counts of land fraud and two counts of bribery. He got dispatched to Phoenix. And when he came out here, he had an already established line of credit with Valley National Bank, one of the signers being Bob Goldwater. Uh, he, came, he came with a lot, of, a lot of help. A lot of that was based on the old Goldwater family connection with the Jewish mob. And, you know, curiously, in a, in a way I kind of resent, uh, later on during the Vietnam War, um, Ned Warren was able to advertise real estate for sale to GIs in, in Vietnam with Barry Goldwater's letter of endorsement, uh, which was really ridiculous. A lot of potential witnesses against Ned died, stabbed to death, uh, curious plane crashes, shot, everything you can think of, and essentially unsolved. Uh, it was just uh, like, like a, just a lot of bodies on the street yeah. over a couple of year period. And that was not that unusual here. Murder was an option. Uh, it was like a menu when you choose either a BLT or a ham and rye or murder. It was an option, and people chose it with remarkable ease. One of the ways that, that uh, Ned Warren lasted as long as he did in in his fraud life here, was he ch he chopped the money very generously with the Republican Party. He gave large contributions to people. He paid bribes. Uh, he was a, he was a generous scammer, and uh, it bought him a lot of time. And there were a few Democrats on his payroll, but it was mostly mainstream Republican Party people. Mm -hmm. And and uh, one of the reasons that Ed Lazar, his bookkeeper, was murdered in 1975. Uh, was not so much to protect Ned, who at that time was, where he realized he was toast. He was under both state and federal indictment, and it was going to it was going to happen. And he also was in the in the early stages of congestive heart failure, so he knew it. It didn't matter whether he got two years or twenty; he was not going to survive very long. Yeah. But one of the reasons Lazar was killed was Lazar knew where the bodies were buried. He had handled a lot of the money that went from Warren to Republican Party people and state officials and all that kind of stuff. And he was killed more to protect them than to protect Ned. Uh, and that was the, the truth of that. He was killed shortly before he was going to be grand jury. I don't know what he would or would not have said at the grand jury. I have no idea whether he would have cooperated or taken the fifth or what. But obviously the, the, the folks around him, uh, not so much Warren, but the people that Warren had been greasing, 
did not want that to happen. And Warren was under a great deal of pressure to make sure it didn't. And Warren arranged uh, for her, for him to be killed with Carl Verevi, actually, is the, one of the two guys that, that killed him. The friendship him. between Bonanno and Warren was cemented in other ways. Uh, Bonanno ran a large money laundering operation for a variety of mob groups in Cochise County. And uh, the Warren group used that operation that Bonanno controlled as did about 10 other organized crime groups around the country. And, but he allowed, he allowed Warren to use that operation to launder a lot of money, which is one of the reasons that Warren's money was never recovered. Uh, and he and, and Warren allowed Bonanno to carry some of his soldiers as salesmen for Warren's various land developments. Must mention if they were approached by the cops and had to have a way of having a job. And and when there were some homicides pulled in prison or attempted on Warren people that Warren wanted killed, it was often Bonanno people in prison that got the job. So these guys scratch each other's back, uh, which was emblematic of both the way Warren worked and the way Bonanno worked and the way Bonanno still had close ties with the Jewish mob. Uh, so, you know, it was a fraternity. For reporter Don Bowles, this cesspool of organized crime, corrupt politicians, and businessmen in his home state had become unacceptable. He would investigate all the above with a dogged determination, but Bowles was stepping into the lion's den, and with organized crime and politics swimming in the same circles as a journalist, he would have to walk a tightrope. And one question I have is how much support did Bowles get from his editors at the Arizona Republic? What stories interested him? And what was his overall theories on all this corruption? Arizona sounds way more corrupt than, say, New York or even Vegas, a desert oasis for criminals to roam free. As Don Bowles lay injured on the pavement at the Clarendon Hotel, he named the mafia and emprise as suspects in his attack. What was the connection between organized crime and a national sports conglomerate? And why did Don Bowles believe they had something to do with his murder? <laughs> 